and welcome to the May 19th edition of Colorado Inside Out, Colorado Public Television's weekly roundtable bringing together journalists, political pundits, and others to discuss events of the past week. Kyle Dyer is on a well-earned vacation this week. I'm Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, and I'll be moderating tonight's panel, which includes back in back here our former host in my chair bringing reason to it <laughs> Dominic Dazuti who now has a media consultant with Dazuti Media Solutions Eric Sonderman is back columnist for Colorado Springs Gazette Denver Gazette and Colorado Politics and we're welcoming back Sage Newman vice president of communications at 76 group and rounding things out Chris Rourke managing editor with the Denver Business Journal it's been a big week with big changes in Colorado's second largest city, Colorado Springs, which was just named the ninth best place to live in U.S. News and World Report. It just elected Yemi Mobilade in the political upset of the year. Dominic, what is your takeaway on this unbelievable upset? Uh, first and foremost, it's wonderful to be here. I'm sorry Miss Kyle Bush is on vacation. It's certainly well-deserved. Uh, I, I will try to bring the requisite level of, of charm and wisdom that this chair usually has. Uh, looking at Colorado Springs, everyone's described it as historic. I can understand that. I absolutely agree. But to me, it's not how people have placed it of uh, progressive versus conservative. This is much more, in my eyes, new and fresh versus established. And I think both Republicans and Democrats should really pay attention to this. And honestly, when it comes to El Paso County, I mean, this was or really is the Alamo for the Colorado Republican Party. And, uh, you know, folks, Santa Ana's coming over the wall. So good luck with that one, Dave Williams. But I think <laughs> it's, it, it's not to be taken for granted with both uh, Democrats or Republicans that a fresh face that came out with a true American story, an immigrant that really made good, is now going to lead uh, Colorado's second largest city. It's going to be interesting to see what he does there and how people take this. It's not just about, as he's talked about, tribes anymore. It's about the new and fresh, fresh face. Well, Eric, you are a face from Colorado Springs, your native town. What do you think of this result? Long ago in Colorado Springs, but yes, that's where I grew up. Uh, I agree with a lot of Dominic's observations. I, I don't regard Yemi Mobilati's victory as an upset. It's an upset if you dial it back six months ago or 12 months ago. Most people would not have laid money on him winning. But in most people, once it became a runoff between him and Wayne Williams, expected him to win because the Republicans and the business developer crowd down there had left so much blood on the ground that first go around that there was no way to put Humpty Dumpty back together again in the form of Wayne Williams. Dominic referred to the Alamo. Whatever uh, metaphor you use, if conservatives and Republicans lose Colorado Springs, then the gig is up, the game is over, and the real tell down there has been the margins. Yes, Republicans have still been winning, you know, running Heidi Ganahl against Jared Polis, etc., but those days of 20, 25-point margins are long gone. Now they've been winning by two, three, four points, and that just doesn't work in a statewide setting. So, Sage, is this El Paso County's Alamo? I, you know, I think that time will tell if this is, you know, that, that first battle that kind of marks this, this shift. I mean, obviously, we have a lot more races that will be coming in, in years. The council majority, will that stay how it is? But I think that one thing that's very important to look at is, you know, right now you have a lot of people on the left saying exactly that. This, you know, the, the dam has broken. El Paso has fallen, you know. And I don't, I don't really think that that's the, the way to read it. I mean, you have a candidate who, like was said, fresh face. 
This is someone different, you know, someone who also has strong ties to the business community. They're not a complete outsider to a lot of folks in the political realm, uh, he might be, but he's somebody who came in and ran on a platform of hiring more cops and keeping Colorado Springs business friendly. Uh, you know, you can put whatever title you want and, and tag them with whatever term, like progressive, but quite frankly, that's a lot different than the progressives we see in Denver. So I think that honestly, it's not to say this is a one-off because the demographics there are changing, but you had to have a lot of Republicans and conservatives vote for him to win. And I think it's because he's offering something different. And is that gonna be a trend? I think time will tell. I think we have to look at this race and back up, and it's been in the news a lot about how this is the first major race under the new GOP administration, the new party chair. There's been a lot of drama in El Paso County. Dave Williams has been on the forefront of that. This is a huge loss for the GOP. And I know Democrats are licking their lips and looking at Mesa County next, Congressional District 3 next. Dave Williams has got to bring the party together. He's not doing the party any favors. He has been critical of Wayne Williams even before the election occurred, you know, saying, well, why is he, I hope he's enjoying the benefits of doing a commercial with Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. He did not do Wayne Williams any favors, and that's not the role of the GOP chair. Another thing we need to mention here is the kind of model Wayne Williams set. And I would love that there's going to be other politicians that laugh like him. He called within 15 minutes of uh, the results coming in to concede the race and then went over and physically congratulated Yemi Mobilade. That was class. And it's sad that we're actually needing to point that out as an anomaly, as an outlier. It'd be wonderful that Wayne Williams and his class shown in this race is actually seen by other leaders. I would chime in and just say, I think it is a mistake to overanalyze this one through a partisan lens. Yes, there was a partisan element to it, but I was down there, I remember last November, right after the November election statewide, and I was doing some kind of presentation down there. Two prominent Republican operative consultant types down there both came up to me and said, you need to meet this guy, meaning Yemi, he will be the next mayor of Colorado Springs, and they were both working with him. This was not a pure Democrat versus Republican thing, and it is a mistake to, you can put that lens on it, but you can't exclusively put that lens on it. But Eric, I want to add to that. Don't you think that the voter is tired of the infighting in the GOP? Oh. Don't you think that that part of that fresh face that they're looking for is because they're tired of the same old tired arguments over and over and over with the GOP. They want something new. Yemi gave it to them. He had endorsements from, you know, Sheriff Bill Elder. He was the perfect candidate at the perfect time with the perfect campaign. Agreed. Mm -hmm. I think one thing to add, though, is that, you know, we Aurora, which we're going to talk about later, is a great example of this. You know, a lot of people on the left who are like, we need partisan labels on the ballot because that's very important for voters to decide. But this is an, a clear example of when those partisan labels aren't on the ballot, voters are forced to consider the candidates themselves. And Yemi was an extremely unique candidate. And so it gave voters an opportunity to say, okay, let's sit down, analyze his policies one by one without the, you know, automatic trigger of a political party on the ballot. Well, and meanwhile, here we are in Denver, now the 99th best place to live in the country, and we have almost three more weeks left in our mayoral runoff. But this week, we had a big move when Lisa Calderon, who'd come in third on April 4th, endorsed Michael Johnston. Eric, how do you think this will affect the campaign from here? Well, the most interesting thing about the Denver mayor's race right now is that it's the second most interesting mayor's race in the state. <laughs> I mean, the Colorado Springs has certainly eclipsed, e eclipsed this in many respects. 
Uh, the Lisa Calderon endorsement was interesting. I got into a mess on social media yesterday by just posing the question of, for Lisa, Lisa's day job is running a group called Emerge Colorado, which whose mission it is to elect Democratic women to office. Last I looked, Kelly Bruff was a Democratic woman. Lisa Calderon has total free agency. She can do whatever she wants. She shouldn't be bound by identity politics. I would be the first to make that case. But yet there seems to be some kind of conflict between the mission of her organization and the route she chose. I do think it is an impactful endorsement. I think Johnson, the consensus wisdom out there is there's not a huge difference between Johnston and Bruff in terms of polling, but Johnston probably has some kind of working advantage. He has a monetary advantage. And this just helps cement him as the more progressive of two not-so-progressive establishment candidates. Sage, what do you see happening now over the next three weeks here? Well, I think that the endorsement game is, is a tough one. I think that this late in the game, it doesn't matter that much. I, I think if it's a two- or three-point race at the end of the day, maybe that's what makes the difference. But here's what you have to look at is that this race, what we, the two candidates we ended up with were, except for the one Republican running, the two most conservative candidates on the ballot. And I think that if you look at where Denver politics has gone, you see some of the other elected officials who ran and lost, I think that voters there are saying, we want something different. And the question is, are all these kind of endorsements that lean more progressive, are those helping or hurting that case for Mike Johnston? I think at the end of the day, we have two candidates who... I don't think fall under that progressive label. I think they defeated a lot of candidates who definitely were more to the left. But will the endorsements matter? Unless it's very close, I just don't think this is going to be what changes the game. Well, of course, we have the ads now, too. Kelly just went with her TV ad that talks about sometimes the best man for the job is a woman. Chris, is that going to help or hurt? Oh, I like the ad very much. It's, it's well done. I think she uh, plays on that theme without overdoing it. Back to Lisa Calderon, I found it interesting both candidates would submit to this questionnaire. It was a 79-question uh, test, for lack of a better word. I looked at the scorecard afterwards. Uh, Mike Johnson scored much higher than Kelly on it, and that's where the endorsement went, based on a scorecard. It doesn't hurt the fact that Michael Johnston has you know, more money in the bank. He may be leading in some polls. It kind of makes it an easy endorsement for Lisa Calderon. It is a large voting block. Eric's right. It has significance with it. But at the same time, does Denver really want a leader that submits to a questionnaire just to get an endorsement? Well, both of them did. So either way, we're going to get a leader who didn't. Yes. Who did the questionnaire. You know, Patty, as I look at this, um, I had the great honor of moderating a debate with both of these candidates uh, just last week with uh, CBS News Colorado and Regis University, my alma mater. Uh, as a debate producer, I loved how congenial they were. When they walked in before the camera started rolling, they were hugging, they were very nice. It was two friends debating. And as a guy who wants to see more congeniality in politics, that's wonderful. But I wouldn't mind a little spice in this race, just, just a dash. I mean, I don't need like La Fiesta green chili level of spice, but a dash of sriracha, something that makes me feel that it's not French vanilla versus vanilla bean. You know, it just feels, and it's just, it feels uh, that we have, there's so much in common that it's been hard to pick out something different. When it comes to Dr. Calderon's endorsement, it really felt to me more like someone who said, here's all the different reasons I don't like Kelly, and oh, by the way, well, I guess the other choice is Michael Johnson, so vote for him. Uh, and I also wonder if 
if there's anybody who's going to say, I'm going to vote because of an endorsement I saw, if there are those people, were there as many people who said Lisa Calderon endorsed Mike Johnston, I should vote for him, or the opposite? I don't know. We'll see. Well, the big question is, are more voters going to come out this time, which will mm -hmm. make the big difference? We're looking at another mayoral race coming up in November in Aurora, Colorado's third largest city. Mike Hoffman, the incumbent who was a former congressman, is running again. And there are a lot of hot issues in that city. I know you're following them, Sage. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that Mike Kaufman has, in my opinion, a good shot at winning this race again. I think one of the things that's possibly could get in the way is the fight that's brewing over whether or not they should have a strong mayor system of government. Uh, it risks dividing that Republican majority on the council. Regardless if you like Mike Kaufman, that's going to be something that affects every future mayor as well. And so that's going to be a huge question. Should more power be put into one office holder or should it be left with the rest of city council? And I'm interested to see how that develops over the next few months. Oh, and meanwhile, in Denver, they're trying to take away some of the power depending on who's elected. What are you watching in Aurora, Chris? Well, that mayor's race particularly, especially when we're talking about strong mayor governance. Um, we have elected officials that come in. They rotate out after their terms are done or when they're elected out. You have a city manager that handles a lot of the day-to-day -day business of the city. And so when you're putting that much power into someone's hands who has been elected in for a certain amount of time, who has varying degrees of expertise as far as managing a city, making decisions that are best for the municipality, you know, that's something that Aurora is going to have to determine that they want. I see problems with it. Uh, I, I realize that a lot of cities function that way. You certainly couldn't do that in a small town, but maybe in Aurora it will fly. Or from Highlands Ranch, what's the view, Dominic? <laughs> uh, it is of great interest. Uh, first of all, I love how interesting Aurora is. It is by far the most diverse city in Colorado, probably within several hundred miles, on every single way you can define diversity. Age, income, ethnicity, race, uh, everything you can think of, and that's what makes it so interesting, and I think what makes this election very interesting in November. And it's a big change. And when I was growing up in Colorado, Aurora was the Jan Brady of cities. It was always Denver, Denver, Denver. Now Aurora's in the spotlight, but it's going to be an exciting campaign to watch Mike Kaufman run. He is one of the hardest campaigners in uh, Colorado politics. I always dreamed of an Ed Perlmutter versus Mike Kaufman statewide race just because of how hard they would run it. So he is not to be underestimated, but if I'm him, I look at what happened in El Paso County, I wrap down every strategy that happened to Wayne Williams and say, what not to do file, because he should pay very close attention to what happened there so as not to make the same mistakes in Aurora. Eric, there's a lot going on in Aurora. What are you watching? I'm watching just the magnitude of change that's going out there, on out there. I mean, the demographic piece Dominic touched on is right on the mark. I find one of the most fascinating places to go is just the Costco on South Havana. I mean, that is, you know, that is, that is Colorado these days. That it, it, it signifies it. Um, but it's, it's not just the mayoral race. You have a new police chief or, or coming in. You have a new school superintendent coming in. You have a battle for the majority on city council. You have the debate over whether there should be a strong mayor. There seems to be a movement in Colorado in major cities. Colorado Springs did this about 15 plus or minus years ago, moving to a strong mayor, former government. Pueblo has done it. I suspect Aurora will do it at some point in time. We'll see if that point is, is right now. And 
for the Democrats who feel ascendant out there, their big challenge, or if it's not Democrats because it's not purely partisan, but the anti-establishment crowd, uh, it's they can't wander too far left. And that has been the inclination as Aurora, is for the left to nominate candidates for mayor and council who are just unelectable because they're off the spectrum. Yeah, and I think following up on that, I think that that's, that's the difference between Colorado Springs and Aurora right now is that Juan Marcano is not Yemi. Um, I mean, and he is right now the, you know, the front runner to take on uh, Mike Kaufman. And I mean, that's someone who is an avowed socialist. Meanwhile, you had Yemi quoting Reagan on the campaign trail. I mean, there's a big difference between those two. So um, I, it, it's going to be a tight race regardless, because they always are in, these, in, in our cities. But um, I, I, I do think that it's going to be very interesting to watch, because Colorado's changing. Uh, these cities are changing. Um, and we'll see if, if new trends start. And we will be talking a lot about Aurora in the weeks to come. But meanwhile, 10 days after the legislature finally finished its session, Governor Jared Polis has started vetoing bills. He has until early June to sign everything into law, but he's already wielding that veto pen on a very controversial bill. And ranchers are howling, Chris. From the very inception of this measure to reintroduce wolves. They have really been under the gun as far as figuring out how they can adapt. We had a bipartisan bill come forward that was going to uh, be contingent upon what is known as a 10J rule with the Fish and Wildlife Service. That would classify wolves as a um, experimental population, a, you know, a, a non-essential experimental population. It would also allow, in some cases, a lethal take of the wolf. Ranchers have said they need this. They need it to protect their livestock. If you go to Gunnison in the dead of winter, the, the, the fences are buried by snow. The little rattling things that are supposed to keep wolves away do not work there. Ranchers want this as an insurance that they will be able to take the proper measures to protect their cattle, their livelihoods. And the governor just vetoed it in one swoop of the pen. He said that he doesn't want to delay wolf reintroduction. There's some debate about whether or not the December 31st deadline is truly pause on the ground. These wolves are to be there. I think it's really uh, unfortunate for the ranchers. I, I understand the, pardon the pun, the beef from ranchers about that this was a, 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 an issue decided by Denver and the urban corridor that really affects ranchers. I understand that, and I understand that this was a, a bipartisan effort to amend that. But I respect Governor Polis for the point that he vetoed it because it did go against the will of the voters. It's not an easy law. There are compromises probably to be had in the future, but if this didn't make it work, uh, it makes sense that he would have come out against that. I also believe there's probably just a little bit of pleasure that Governor Polis might take in vetoing something. He did this pretty early, as you stated. He didn't need to do it this early. Um, and I think it's important to note that while Governor Polis makes his own decisions, he is his own man, our first gentleman, Marlon Reese, is a very strong animal rights advocate. It wouldn't stun me that, uh, that Governor Polis would be exposed to a few opinions about wolf reintroduction and what it can mean to the ecosystem in Colorado right here at home. I'd like to argue that point, though, sure. on the will of the people, because mm -hmm. I saw that. That was his main purpose mm -hmm. in vetoing this bill. This measure passed on a very small margin. I've spoken to voters since then who have kind of second-guessed their vote. They did not realize at the time what this impact would be. So as to the will of the people, I would question that somewhat. 
whether if it was a close vote or not, it still comes down to a majority. And it, it can be controversial. It could be something where, hey, there's still something to work out. But was this the right compromise? Well, then it means that they have to work harder at finding it. Well, let's hear from another people. Eric. <laughs> another people. <laughs> I mean, this was the will of the people. Chris is right. It was by narrow margin, but doesn't matter. Narrow margin, one vote, uh, 100,000 votes. It is still the will of the people. The question is, was this appropriate implementation legislation? I would argue that it was. I give credit to Dylan Roberts, a Democrat from the Western Slope, Megan Lukens in the House, another Democrat for the Western Slope, for putting their geographical interests above their partisan interests. I've been outspoken on this issue since before the election. You know this, Patty. There there is no issue that causes letters to be written from particularly pro-wolf advocates um, in the volume, whether it's on to this management of this station or when I put it in print to my editors. Uh, these people are animated. They don't like uh, people who have a different point of view. So my advice to them might be, you know, uh, take a breath or, or decaf a little bit on the coffee here. You're getting your way. These wolves are going to be introduced. I do think Jared Polis misses opportunity after opportunity to throw an olive branch to rural Colorado. Well, there's a bumper sticker phrase that's used by a lot, a lot of rural Coloradans, which is that there's a war on rural Colorado. And whether you believe that or not, a veto from a governor from Boulder saying, I'm sorry, rural folks, I've heard your concerns. I heard the overwhelming bipartisan vote in both chambers, but no thank you. I mean, yes, that was the will of the people to, to, to pass that measure. But guess what? The legislators who are there, they're also there by the people's vote, and they voted overwhelmingly to pass this, almost veto-proof in both chambers. Um, I think there were only six no votes in the Senate. Um, I think, you know, it's great that we have animal rights activists. I'm all for animals. But unfortunately, that only extends to wolves and not to the cattle who are going to be killed, which then affects the livelihood of our, our rural uh, ranchers and farmers. I think that's, that's terrible. And I think that this was a mistake. I think it was a missed opportunity. Um, and I, I really don't I don't understand it. I don't understand why they thought this was a good move, politically or otherwise. Well, we will have plenty of time to talk about the wolves when they are reintroduced <laughs> later this year. But now let's go to one of our favorite parts of the show. You know this one, Dominic. <laughs> What's your low of the week? Uh, my low of the week I really should have started out with Florida Man. And sadly, it was started out with Springfield, Colorado Man. <laughs> I think every husband understands there's only so many things you can blame on the dog. Drunk driving is not one of them. You cannot say that the dog was driving and uh, kudos for creativity, but low on everything else for the man in Springfield, Colorado, blaming his dog for the drunk driving. And there were two sober people in the back seat, which is my favorite part of that. Eric, what's your low? Yeah, my dog has already told me very clearly <laughs> she's not taking the fall for me on this one. Uh, Denver Public Schools just uh, gave a pay raise uh, and revised the contract of the superintendent. Uh, if I've seen questionable performance before and not exactly meritorious of a raise in pay, I think this might be that situation. Sage. I think my low would have to be, it's only a few inches low, and that's the potholes in the state. <laughs> uh, yet again, another legislative session has gone by where fixing our roads has not been a significant priority for the legislature. And after the rains that we've had, I have on multiple occasions thought that for sure my wheel was coming off. I cannot imagine how much people are paying to repair their cars with blown tires and, and cracked wheels. Um, it's, it's disappointing. And Chris? Well, I hate to beat this subject to death, but the wolf bill, the veto. Eric's right. This was an opportunity for an olive, olive branch to be extended. 
it was a past opportunity. I, I, I just think it was a real low. But we've had high points too. Dominic? I saw my high point in the news today. Uh, Blue Mesa Reservoir is releasing water that will make its way through the Black Canyon of the Gunnison onto the Colorado River and actually onto uh, uh, Lake Powell and Lake Mead. It is not enough. This is not some sort of license that we can suddenly turn on the sprinklers 24-7, but that there's actually water going that way. I think the first time in like four years, that's a nice thing. Eric? Well, first of all, it's good to have Dominic back in the house, so that's a, that is a high point. And uh, speaking of uh, Colorado Inside Out then and Colorado Inside Out now, one of our super fans, our biggest promoter, Tim Jackson, uh, for years and years and in the current tense as well, uh, has announced his retirement from the Automobile Dealers Association. And well done, Tim, and good luck to you. Sage, what's your high point? I think mine goes to something Dominic alluded to, which is courtesy and civility in politics. We saw that with Yemi and Wayne Williams. Not just, you know, a handshake, but a hug. Mm-hmm. at his celebration party. Um, I think we also saw it in D.C. with the unveiling of Paul Ryan's portrait. We had Nancy Pelosi there. The, these things, again, like you shouldn't need to mention them, but we can see a time in the near future where that doesn't happen anymore, where, that, where you know, the battle goes far beyond the bills that reach the floor of the House and the Senate, and they become hatred. And that is something we need to be very vigilant to prevent against, because at the end of the day, we're all Americans, we're all Coloradans, we're all neighbors, and we're all just trying to do our dang best. And civility around this table, too. Chris? (laughs) Well, I discovered this week that there are microbes that actually eat plastic, and they've discovered some in the Arctic that eat plastic at low temperatures, which is more feasible to use these in landfills and whatnot to try to uh, mitigate for plastics put in the landfills. I think this is a great opportunity. Uh, I think that there is uh, hope for the future when we talk about plastic in landfills. I don't think that will reverse bag bans, but I'm hopeful. Okay, well, that's all we have tonight. (laughs) Next week, I'll be back in my normal chair, and Krista Caper will be in this very hot seat. Thank you for watching tonight on your TV or device. You can also watch Colorado Inside Out on pbs12.org and YouTube, or listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Have a great weekend, and thanks for watching.